Hey guys, good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. It's exciting. Donnie, are you finished with your Christmas shopping? God bless Amazon. I hear you, buddy. Uh, Donnie's the one that actually turned me on to Amazon a few years ago when it comes to Christmas shopping. And uh, Donnie, I'm forever grateful. Thank you, my friend. I I heard uh, a a lady telling a story this week about her grandfather. He had turned about 73, 74, 75, something like this. And uh, the girl's grandmother had already passed away. And so... uh, Grandpa was kind of uh, feeling like he was a little too old to go out and do Christmas shopping for everyone. And so what he decided to do was send everyone a card, include a check in it. And he also put a note inside, like a return card, that he put a stamp on. And uh, and inside the main card, it just said, um, buy your own Christmas presents this year. There's a note inside already stamped for you to just shoot me a note back to say, hey, this is what I bought with, uh, uh, bought myself for Christmas. Christmas rolls around. Everything's great. He has, you know, celebrates Christmas with all these family members and uh, no one says anything about the card. And a couple weeks goes by. He hasn't heard anything, uh, uh, you know, about what people have bought with their checks and stuff like that. And uh, about three weeks into January, he was doing some cleanup in his office. He moved a stack of papers and found out why no one had sent him a note back. He didn't put the check in the cards. And so can you imagine that? They open up the card from Grandpa. They're kind of excited about it. And the message inside just says, buy your own Christmas presents this year. Shoot me a note to tell me what you bought. Man. So nobody had said anything to Grandpa. I guess they're thinking, well, he's getting older. Uh, so maybe he's grouchy or forgetful or maybe both. I, I don't know. But um, anyway, I, that whole doing the check thing, that's, uh, there might be something to that. Anyway, it's good to see you guys this morning. We're going to talk about the Christmas story. Is that okay with you guys? It's Christmas, right? And I, I know that for a lot of us, the Christmas story is so familiar that uh, we could lip sync it. But the thing about Christmas is, and I, I tell my buddies this all the time, my buddies who are pastors, people never get tired of the Christmas story. It's just a great story. And, and I've, been, I've been preaching on the Christmas story in one form or another for nearly 25 years. And there's always something new about it, something fresh and uh, so I, I have some things that I think are new and fresh to talk about with you this morning. Uh, have you guys heard the saying, and I'm sure that you have, uh, but it goes something like this. The spirit of Christmas is giving. Have you heard this? I'm not the only one. Show of hands. You've heard it? Yeah. Well, I, I tried to, to, to find out this week where that comes from, and I couldn't find out where it comes from. But I can tell you this, that it's wrong. It's wrong. The spirit of Christmas is not giving. It's receiving. Now, parents, I understand when they, they're trying to teach their kids the value of things and, you know, they don't want Christmas to be all about the shiny things that are under the tree or whatever. I, I get that. They want kids to understand that there's the giving component to Christmas. But the spirit of Christmas is not giving It's receiving. Specifically, it's about God giving us 
the greatest gift we could ever imagine. It's greater than anything we could ask for. It's the most expensive, sacrificial gift that one could ever receive. The spirit of Christmas is about God giving us his son, Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John three sixteen, and you guys know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, and if you're reading it on the screen behind me, uh, the New King James doesn't include the believeth stuff, but that's the way I learned it in K-5 kindergarten from Miss Siegel at Mulberry Baptist Church Preschool. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Christmas is all about. Now that's from the Gospel of John, but Luke has his own way of sharing the Christmas story. And really, this is the Christmas story that most of us know so well. Now I'm not gonna read it out of the King James Version. I'm gonna read it from the New International Version. And what I'd like for you to do, just for, I don't know, the three minutes or so it takes to read this passage, I want you to try to listen to it with fresh ears this morning. Again, I know you could lip sync it, but listen to it this morning. You, you can follow along in your notes or follow along on the screens behind me, but I'd really like it if you just listen to the story. And again, try to hear it with brand new ears. One of the things that... Um, that I love about Luke's gospel is all of the details that he includes. One of the things you have to remember about the gospels, and I'm sorry, but I feel like teaching this morning, so I'm gonna teach a little bit and preach a little bit. But the thing about the gospels is that they're all written to different groups of people. For, for example, Matthew was a Jewish man. He, he became a follower of Jesus and an evangelist to the Jewish people. So when you read his gospel, it's very Jewish. Uh, for, for example, it's full of scriptural references to Jesus being the fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. It, just when you start in the gospel of Matthew, what does it start with? It starts with his genealogies. And so my son James was talking to me the other night about some Bible things, which I have to tell you makes me kind of proud that um, 19-year-old kid wants to ask me about the genealogies in Matthew. I said, son, that's just a little bit weird that you want to know about it, but it does make me happy at the same time. He wanted to know why they are there. Why does Matthew start with something so boring? Well, again, Matthew is a Jew writing about the Messiah who has come to the world and If you can't show that Jesus is of the lineage of David and ultimately to Abraham, well, then there's no use in talking about miracles because they would never believe in a Messiah who could not trace his family tree back through David and ultimately to Abraham. So it's why he starts there. Mark, on the other hand, is a gospel written to the Gentiles. So he hardly references the Old Testament at all. And why would he? He's talking to people who are Gentiles that may not even live in Judea. So they wouldn't understand the Old Testament references anyway. John's something different, but Luke includes so many details. And you you understand why when he begins his gospel in the early verses of chapter one, he says to a, a friend of his, Theophilus, friend of God, 
He says, and by the way, Luke is a doctor. So he has this methodical sort of mind. And he says, um, I've done all of the research about Jesus. I've done the interviews. I've questioned people, people who were there at the crucifixion, people who experienced the resurrection, even the people who were the closest to Jesus, including Mary. And so here is all of the evidence that I can lay out for how I know and how you can know that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so have you ever wondered why he has so much detail about the birth of Jesus in his gospel? It's because he interviewed Mary. He didn't just grow up knowing Mary. He had to get to know Mary. So he interviewed her. It's why he has the details about Gabriel coming to Mary. And he he knows what Gabriel said to Mary, not because he was there, but because he asked Mary, who was obviously there, so tell me about how you knew that Jesus was Messiah. How does Luke have details like Mary's magnificent, Mary's song? Because she sang it to him on the front porch one day while they were having lemonade and eating banana pudding. Uh, they had a conversation about it. And Luke thinks it's important to give the details. And this story is just full of the details. So... Here we go. Luke says, in those days, what days? The days when Jesus was born. They didn't have a calendaring system the way we have it. And keep in mind that when Luke is writing his gospel, Jesus has probably been dead and resurrected for about 15 years. So he's not keeping a journal as he goes along. He's writing this. In hindsight, after he's done all of the research, and what he wants to do here is give us a time frame. In those days, or the days when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So you can imagine if he's telling someone, it was back in those days when Quirinius was governor. This was the, like you, you remember that census? You know, it was the second one that he gave out. And whoever's listening to that, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know what you mean. Now, now I know the time when you're talking about. He couldn't say it was April 4th. 4 BC when Jesus was born or December 25th, year one. You just have to give a a time reference. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. I'm sorry, I left out verse three. And everyone went to their hometown to register. They're registering for the census so that the Romans could tax them. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, Because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, uh, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, swaddling clothes, or swaddling cloths, uh, the King James Version says. And she placed him in a manger 
Not a little wooden manger, but a stone manger that probably stood about this tall and was maybe six feet long or so. It had a trough inside of it, maybe a foot deep. And animals like camels and horses would come over and eat hay out of this trough. So they had not been shopping at Babies R Us. He gives a little note there at the end of verse 7 saying, because there was no room or no guest room available to them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in grave cloths and lying in a manger. So for just a few minutes, I want to talk about the love of Christmas. The love of Christmas. Not a sappy sort of love, but real love. Christmas teaches us just lots and lots of lessons. But there are three that I want to share with you this morning. That There are three lessons that I think really point to the fact that God loves us. And here they are. If you're taking notes, just write these down. Number one, Jesus understands my struggles. Jesus understands my struggles. I love Christmas songs. Do you? I, I love Christmas songs, and at the same time, I hate Many of them. Uh, I do. Probably the song I look forward to hearing the most every December is Oh Holy Night with Greta singing it. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I feel like when we get to heaven, the Lord's going to have Greta sing that song. I just, it's a great song, and I've just never heard anyone sing it better than her. And I know what the song is pointing at. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old holy night. But some of the descriptions in that song or some of the descriptions in Silent Night are just so wrong. And I think that, that many of us have this idea that the first Christmas night was cute Probably because of children's plays, you know, children's pageants. And I, I love those. I thought ours last weekend was just great. But many of us are left with this childlike or not even just childlike, but childish understanding of that first Christmas night. So we think it was either cute or that it was comfortable or clean. And it was just none of those things. This, uh, this next September, I'm going to be taking a group of people to the Holy Land. I'd love to take you with us. So if you're interested in that, just write Holy Land on your connection card and drop it in the 
the offering basket on your way out today, and, and I'll put you on the list and keep you informed. But one of the things I love to do when we go to the Holy Land is go to Bethlehem because it changes probably the way you've always imagined Jesus being born and the kind of place he might have been because Jesus wasn't born in a, in a nice little wooden stable out in the countryside in Vermont somewhere. Jesus was born in a stable, but it was more like a cave. And they wouldn't have been the only travelers in there. You know, there was no room for them at the inn. And there might have only been one Bethlehem Motor Lodge, but there certainly weren't, weren't many. There just wasn't a whole lot of places to stay. And so Mary and Joseph, pregnant Mary, they were probably just one of many couples who had no place to stay. So I doubt the cave that Jesus was born in was a lonely one because there were likely lots of other travelers in the same cave. And for sure there were animals. It wasn't a quiet night because you could hear the screams of a non-medicated childbirth from a girl who was probably 15 years of age at the very most. Mary could have been as young as 12 or 13, but probably closer to 14 or 15. It's just the way things worked in those days. No, no mom there with her. She's traveling. No midwife, no, no aunts, just Mary. Maybe she's seen uh, you know, other children being born, but this is the first time it's ever happened to her, and she's all by herself. It wasn't a clean place. It's a, it's a stable for sure in this cave, and so there are animals there, and I'm sure they're not just lowing. It's not a sweet sound. It's probably a loud sound in that cave. The tones just reverberate off of those walls. I was over at the, uh, the seventh layer of Dante's Inferno, hell, uh, the shopping mall last week. You, you've heard me say before, I think they ought to put a sign up over every entrance that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter in. But anyway... There's a kiosk there. They were selling candles, mostly Christmas candles. And there was a sign that said, Christmas scents. You know, S-C-E-N-T-S. You could buy candles that smell like Christmas. And so I looked through them. There's like fresh cut pine. That smells like Christmas, doesn't it? Um, Orange and vanilla. I get the orange part, not so sure about the vanilla. The spicy fruit, just all kinds. Uh, I, I looked through the candles, uh, but I, I couldn't find one that said camel dung. <laughs> or goat urine. Because that's what it smelled like on that first Christmas night. And it's not comfortable. Jesus wasn't born to royals. Jesus was born to, to parents that at the very best 
they were working class, if not peasants. And I have asked myself this week a couple of times, why? Why would Jesus just not be born to the, the, the family of the high priest? Because more of, the, more of the Jewish religious leaders would have believed in, in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. If the high priest in Jerusalem at the temple would have announced that he has a, a son and he's the Messiah. I mean, part of the reason that a lot of the leaders didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah is that he came from two peasants that nobody had ever even heard of except their family and friends that lived right around them. I think it's so he could identify with our struggles. I, I think to... I think to the person who would say this Christmas, this Christmas stinks because I don't have enough money to buy what I want. Or this Christmas stinks because I'm struggling just to make ends meet. I think Jesus could say, yeah, I understand that. I was raised by poor parents too. I think to the family that's struggling to to make ends meet, Jesus could say, hey, I, I get that. I remember there were lots of weeks when we didn't have meat on the table. We just have the stuff that goes with the meat. I, I think to the the person who's struggling with a family who just doesn't get them, doesn't understand who they are or what they're dealing with or, um, you know, why they're following Jesus or why they won't follow Jesus. I think Jesus could say, yeah, I I totally relate to that. I, I remember a time when my parents, my mother, my brothers, they didn't understand me either. I think the reason Jesus was born into a family the way he was and the fact that Jesus never insulated himself from problems and pain in the world is so he could say, yeah, I identify with your pain. I get that. I I understand that you hurt. I know what that's like. I've had pain too. It kind of changes the way you think about Jesus, doesn't it? One of the things we'll do in the Holy Land is go to um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And sometimes it catches me off guard a little bit about the, the places that seem to mean so much to people in Israel. Like, I expect people to be emotional when we go to the Garden Tomb. We have a communion service there. I expect people to be somewhat emotional when we go to Bethlehem. But I, I was caught off guard several years ago when a woman just began to weep in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went after having the Lord's Supper together. They went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus left a few here to pray. He took Peter, James, and John a little further to pray and then he went off by himself and prayed. And he prayed that if the Lord's will, if this cup that he was about to drink, his 
crucifixion, if it could be another way, he prayed for that. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And this woman there at that spot, she just began to cry. And, you know, after she had gotten herself together, she, she came up to me and said, uh, my husband passed away earlier this year. And she said, I, I was just overwhelmed in, in this garden realizing that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he, he understands how I feel. He was hurting here. He was upset and emotional. The humanness of Jesus came out. And a God like that who struggled, that just lets me know he, he understands my struggles. That's true. Our God knows that we struggle. He understands our struggles. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus cares about me. Jesus cares about me. You can't really love someone without making sacrifices for them. Now, I won't be on this point very long, but I want to say a couple things here that I think are pretty strong. If, if you're in a relationship with someone who won't make sacrifices for you, that's a clue that he or she doesn't really love you. Not really. You, you can't love someone fully without making sacrifices. I don't care what your theory on love and marriage and those sort of things is. It doesn't matter. You can't really love someone without making sacrifices for them. Every married couple makes sacrifices. You sacrifice something. You give up something. And if you say that you've never given up anything, you're either lying or you're not in love. And the thing about God is that he loves us, but he doesn't just say that. He gives to us, and it's a sacrificial giving. He gave us his son who was offered as a sacrifice for our sins. I mean, just think about that. Listen, I'm your pastor, and I love you. I might let somebody break my arm for you. I might have a serious fist fight for you. It's been a long time since I've taken a punch. It's been a long time since I've given a punch, but I think I love you that much. I'm not sure I'd die for you. And even if I would, depending on what the circumstances are, I, I can't see a circumstance where I would let my son die for you. And I'll bet you would say the same for me. And everyone else, I mean, that's just a depth of love that I don't know that I fully comprehend. 
And that's exactly how much God loved us. And then, then the, thing about, the thing about Jesus is he tells us then that that's the way we're to love each other. One of the greatest passages in the whole Bible is in John 15, where Jesus is sitting around with his disciples, and he says to them, greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Love one another. Be willing to die for each other. Make sacrifices for each other. That's the way we're supposed to live as followers of Christ. But that's modeled to us by a God who doesn't just give us pretty pleasant words, but a God who, as they say, puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say, I love you. He shows that he loves us. And he does that by sending his son, Jesus, to us. That's love. If you want to know how much God cares about you, you only have to look at the cross. That's how much. And then finally, Jesus sees my value and potential. Jesus sees my value and potential. If you're looking at Mary, um, if you're looking at Joseph, Joseph looks like practically any kid that would have been born in Bethlehem. Mary looked like practically any kid from Nazareth. And she had family that lived in Nazareth and family that lived in Jerusalem. But the point is, she looked like any other Jewish girl that's around 15 years of age. And if, if you were a part of the, the search committee in heaven that's looking for a mother for Jesus, if you're collecting the resumes, there's nothing on Mary or Joseph's resume that makes you go, God, here it is right here, this girl. This guy, this just ha- these people have to be the parents of Jesus. They're ordinary, maybe less than ordinary. And, and they, they're not especially sophisticated. You know, they, they, don't, they don't even come from Jerusalem. If Mary was born in Jerusalem, she was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth and Bethlehem, by the the scripture's own admission, those are just backwood country places, which I think are the best places, but they're nowhere special. They were not born in New York. They were not born in Paris. They weren't born in London. They're not especially sophisticated. They're just regular people. From ordinary places. And I don't think any of that is by accident. I think that's all by design. I think it's to show the world's folly. That God can do 
the impossible with nobodies or everyday bodies, ordinary bodies, regular people. And he can show up in the ordinary places. In fact, our God specializes in choosing and working in and through the unlikely and the overlooked people and places. So what does that have to do really with Christmas? Well, we live in Charlotte Metro. I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm from Charlotte. But I mean, really and truly, we still live in a, in a metro area where when we say, I'm from Charlotte, you have to say North Carolina just to make sure people know where you're talking about. It's not like you can say, yeah, I'm from New York. And of course, when you say New York, if you're from New York, you know what that means. Everybody thinks you're from Manhattan, right? Nobody assumes, nobody thinks, well, you're from Albany then, right? Or you're from, when you say New York, everybody just thinks New York City. We're just an ordinary place. I mean, there's some great people in this room, but there are no royals in here. No kings, no queens. Just regular people in a regular, ordinary place. The message of Christmas with that is that that's the kind of places that the Lord shows up. It's the kind of place that he, he brings his power and shows up and shows out. That means he's more than willing to come to you. To pour his power into your life. To do a Christmas miracle in your life just like he did 2,000 years ago. What do you need God to show up and do? I mean, your, your real Christmas list, what, what would that look like if you, if you really believed that God had the potential to show up in your life? What, what, what would be at the top of your list? Would it be something like, Lord, I need you to show up and break this power, break this hold that drugs have on me? Or, Lord, I, I need you to show up with your power and your strength to overcome this longing inside of me for alcohol that's just destroying me. Lord, I, I need you to show up in your power and might and help me through this divorce or through this loneliness or through this broken heart. You know, my best friend, one of my best friends, I'm not sure when you're 50 if you still talk about best friends and stuff like that, but he's one of my oldest and best friends, Nelson. Just had uh, his second major cancer surgery last Tuesday. Doing great, doing great. All the tumors are removed. Right now they're calling him cancer-free. Praise the Lord. Thought they were going to get to go home yesterday. 
but he has some kind of infection. They couldn't figure it out. Specialists came in, and he has a partially collapsed lung, which they can fix, but they're going to be in there three or four more days. You know, when you've already been in the hospital for 10 days, three or four more days in the hospital, your little boy's at home. Alex is 10. Grandparents are staying with him. That just makes for a miserable Christmas. So much to be thankful for, and they're glad they are where they are, but I'm just praying that the Lord shows up in a hospital room in Miami, helps them to have a Christmas they'll never forget. What, what, what do you need? Let's stand together and pray for that need right now. So once you're standing, if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for the Christmas story. I mean, it's just packed full of so many important things. Lord, we've learned some, some valuable and important things this morning. That you understand our struggles. That you can identify with us in whatever we're dealing with. You love us. You care for us more than we could even imagine help us to try to love others that same way but then Lord we know that you see our potential you see what other people can't see you know our value Lord we learn from this story that through your power and your might you can show up and show out anywhere you, you, you go to ordinary places you, you do miracles through unlikely people. And so, Lord, that gives us hope that you could and would do things like that in our lives for us. Lord, right now, in the, in the best way I know how, I ask you to do a Christmas miracle in each of our lives. Lord, by our standards, some might be bigger than others. I don't think you look at it that way. I don't think you look at one need and think of it as greater than the other. But we we have a way of doing that. Some of us, Lord, we need healing ourselves. Lord, some of us need to be healed from a broken heart. Lord, some of us need you to show up and and meet the need of a dream that we have for something. Lord, something that's meaningful that we might not even share with other people. But Lord, whatever it is, we, we pray that you would do that this Christmas. At the end of Christmas people would be able to say because of the power of God I was able to f- forgive my father because of the power of God I was able to overcome this addiction in my life because of God's power this happened in my life 
And Lord, we'll give you glory for that for sure. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.